This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with the support of Sock Club. Of course, socks are great any time of year, but with winter approaching, I start wanting that extra layer of warmth on my feet, especially at night. But I look through my sock drawer, and it's less than inspiring. That's where Sock Club comes in. Each month, they send soft, snuggly socks with cool designs straight to your door. They're made in the U.S., and each pair comes with a personalized letter explaining the story behind the socks. My first Sock Club package included a stylish pair of socks, a poem by William Blake, and an explanation of how my new socks were inspired by the deep golden fields of fall. An unusual approach to socks, yes, but it's those little things that brighten my day. And with the holidays coming up, I think a monthly Sock Club subscription is a great way to show you care. Go to SockClub.com Nocturne and get 15% off using discount code Nocturne. Give a little reminder of your love every month. Give Sock Club. Again, that's SockClub.com Nocturne with the code Nocturne. This episode is also supported by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking delicious meals fun and easy. Each week, HelloFresh creates new recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. They send fresh ingredients measured precisely so you have exactly what you need. This came in super handy for me just last week when I hit that cooking wall. It had been a long day. My partner had a cold, and so I had cooked every meal for the last week. I was starting to think about takeout pizza. And then I remembered that HelloFresh had made it easy for me to make a healthy and satisfying meal without needing to plan anything or take a lot of time. I felt pretty pleased with myself when just 30 minutes later, I had cooked crispy chicken Milanese with yellow squash and lemony arugula. It was beautiful, healthy, and delicious. Visit HelloFresh.com and use promo code Nocturne30 to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. Again, that's Nocturne30. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. My relationship to dreams is a paradox. On one hand, I'm very affected by my dreams. I've always dreamed vividly, remembered them clearly, and often have trouble shaking the emotional residue of dreams. After one particular dream in which my partner did something mean, I had trouble letting go of feeling hurt and angry, and he found himself apologizing for whatever his dream self had done. Despite this, I've never taken dreams all that seriously. I haven't seen them as giving me particularly useful information or guiding me in any meaningful way. That seems kind of strange, that dreams can have such a potent presence in my life, And at the same time, I ascribe them so little value. In Western culture, when kids have a nightmare, parents often soothe them by saying, it's just a dream, a message that I think is emblematic of our general attitude towards what happens when we're sleeping. When I learned about lucid dreaming, I found my interest peaked. If you don't know what that is, lucid dreaming means to know you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Beyond that, some people find that they can control aspects of their dreams. They fly to exotic places, reconnect with loved ones, perfect their golf swing. There are hundreds of books on lucid dreaming, as well as YouTube videos, conferences, and devices meant to bring on lucid dreams. Some people spend a lot of time, effort, and money learning how to do it. Before I learned the term lucid dreaming, I'd had a long history of thinking I'd woken up from a dream, only to find that I was still sleeping. Dreaming professionals call this false awakening, 
The way I would realize that I was still dreaming was that I would notice some detail that didn't make sense. I called these things the tells, like in poker. It could be anything, like seeing someone who's died or finding your car in the living room. When I would notice a tell in a dream, I would say to myself, wait a minute, this must be a dream. So that's lucid dreaming. But I had never controlled anything in a dream. It sounded really fun. So I bought a book. It gave tips such as setting your intention to have a lucid dream and telling yourself, I am aware and lucid in my dream. Also, it talked about the importance of recording all your dreams so you get in the habit of remembering them. No offense to the authors, but none of it worked. And then, a few months after I had put the book up on a shelf, I found myself alone in a strange, stark motel room in rural Northern California. I was doing a story that had me coming back to the room very late at night, and this happened. 6.30 in the morning and I'm at a motel, a Comfort Inn in Ukiah. I just had my first lucid dreaming flying experience. In my dream, I left my hotel room, but I realized I had left my laptop on the desk and I didn't put the do not disturb sign on the door. So I ran back and I went into the room and the first thing I noticed was that the bed was pulled out, sort of turned around. And uh, I had kind of noticed, but didn't really think anything of the fact that this little tiny artificial Christmas tree was propped up on the side of the room. I was starting to walk into the bathroom and I thought, miniature Christmas tree? Wait a second. I think I might be dreaming. But when I knew for sure that I was dreaming is when I went into the bathroom and in the shower was a whole bunch of neatly lined up, really beautifully colored shoes. Shoes like you've never seen before. And all these gorgeous colors all lined up on this strange shoe rack. And I thought, I'm definitely dreaming. And I turned towards the, the mirror over the sink. I didn't see myself, but I realized I can bounce. I looked down at my hands and I wiggled my fingers and they were all kind of slightly wavy. And I realized I should take advantage of this opportunity. I know I'm dreaming, so let's try some more of this bouncing. I started doing the backstroke. I was up in the air in the bathroom with my hands behind me, doing this reverse backstroke, moving myself through the air. It was extremely exciting. I don't know what was more exciting, the flying or the beautiful shoes. Honestly, it was very much like my one experience with psilocybin when I was in grad school. After that, I did some research and located someone who's pretty much a celebrity in the world of lucid dreaming. I might have had 30,000 lucid dreams, I'd have like from two to 10 lucid dreams a week. That's Beverly Durso. She's been writing and teaching about lucid dreaming for decades now. When I'm lucid, it's an energizing experience. Anything's possible. I've let myself be killed and shot and died and replayed the same dream where I've gotten shot and died just to see what would happen. I tried to merge with the sun and 
I lost all the environment and I stayed in this place of pure peace. If I have sexual energy in my dream, I will have sex in the dream and I have an orgasm in the dream. If you've gone everywhere you can imagine, you know, if you've flown to the sun and you've, you know, become fire and you've chopped your own head off to see what it's like, it's like, how far can my imagination go? That was a question that a Stanford scientist named Stephen LaBerge was also asking in the 1980s. Beverly was one of the main subjects in his research studies on lucid dreaming. I actually met Stephen in the late 70s, and he, he actually said that he wanted to develop lucid dreaming as a safe way, a non-hallucinogenic or drug way to have altered experiences. That was a goal of his, I believe, and it is true. I mean, I've had some dreams and people say, wow, that sounds like an LSD experience. And I, well, I haven't had one of those, but you know, I guess I have in the sense that the garbage can lid was amazingly beautiful. The colors that were coming out of this garbage can lid, you know, that was my one example of something that was, um, you know, extremely mind blowing in, in a lucid dream. Throughout the 1980s, while working on her PhD in artificial intelligence, Beverly would regularly spend nights in the Stanford sleep lab, hooked up to electrodes, being monitored by Stephen and his technicians while she had lucid dreams. Once his work got published and his first book came out, there was a lot of interest in the media, and they would come to the lab and they'd want to watch me sleep and signal my eyes. Beverly had figured out that she could signal to the researchers with her eyes while she was dreaming. So we were able to tell, with electrodes on my physical eyes, we were able to tell that I was in REM sleep. Electrodes on my brain showing I was in REM sleep as well. But I could actually move my dream eyes back and forth, and I would give a signal of four times, left, right, left, right, and it would show up on the polygraph machine as a signal and show that I had not woken up. I was definitely asleep and dreaming. So we began to do a series of experiments. Like I would show that I knew I was dreaming. I would do some mental task. I would sing a song or do a math problem and signal that I'm about to wake myself up. And it would all be recorded. And then they would study that to see how the brain functions differently in sleep. And we went on to do all kinds of other, you know, breathing, heart rate, and the sexual experiments as well. Beverly has the distinction of having had the first officially recorded lucid dream orgasm. In the lab, she was hooked up to an internal monitor and signaled with her eyes that she was going to try to have an in-dream orgasm. The equipment confirmed that she had, and she later reported that she had floated over the Stanford campus, found a man on the path down below, and that they had had sex then and there. All this to say that Beverly is a lucid dreaming expert. That's why I was pretty surprised and disappointed when she turned down my initial request for an interview. It took a year for her to agree to talk to me. When you first contacted me, I was getting, for some reason, suddenly I was getting all these interview requests and, and a lot of uh, emails from people wanting to go back to the basics. And you know, I've done that so many decades that I'm, you know, I also don't think that there's any like one, two, three method for becoming a lucid dreamer. <laughs> I tell people nowadays, it's kind of like, can you please give me five steps towards enlightenment? And, you know, it's going to happen in the next month. <laughs> like many people, Beverly discovered lucid dreaming when she was very young. As a child, 
I had reoccurring nightmares of these really scary witches that would come chase me through the house and I'd wake up, you know, just miserable. And it felt like I'd had this nightmare my whole life. But when I was five and six years old, I was just terrified of going to sleep. I used to say things to these witches like, you know, spare me tonight, you can take me in tomorrow night's dream. So when I woke up, I started realizing that witches only came in dreams. And if I knew it was a dream, they weren't going to be able to hurt me. So when I was seven, one night in the summer, I went to sleep. And sure enough, the witches came out of the closet. They chased me through the house. I fell down on the steps. And then I realized that I was dreaming. So I looked him in the eye and I said, okay, what do you want? Let's get this over with right now. So basically, I completely surrendered to them. I faced up to them, and they flew away without doing anything, and that pretty much ended my nighttime nightmare. But the great thing about it was I was able to learn how to become aware that I was dreaming while I'm dreaming and do that whenever I wanted to, so I could have adventures and do crazy cool things in my sleep. And I continued that um, throughout adolescence, which I think is the time that a lot of people who have lucid dreams when they're a child start to lose that ability. It's made a big difference in my life. <laughs> it's the biggest thing that's affected my life in a whole is that one particular dream. And I talk about it a lot, and it gets written up a lot. One of the things that's really cool about it is when I knew I was dreaming, I didn't just try to kill the witch or turn it into the Easter Bunny, or all these things that you read about people do in lucid dreaming, now that it's become much more well-known, I actually was willing to just surrender to it and allow whatever happened. And because of that, the witches since then have become kind of a creative power for me. I've used them in each decade of my life for various reasons. I've gone to search for them. I brought them into my body. I went out and flew with them. And, you know, I've had not just adventures, but some really cool experiences that affected me when I'm awake as well. According to Beverly, whether you're talking about lucid dreaming or waking life, it all comes down to one question. Are we dreaming right now? Is it possible? <laughs> That is the most important thing to ask the question, not so much the answer. Many lucid dreaming experts recommend asking yourself this question throughout your waking days so that you'll naturally ask it when you're asleep. It's a very quick way to become lucid in your dreams. In fact, the answer to this question can tell you with some certainty if you're dreaming. Like if you find yourself walking your dead dog, that's a pretty good tip off. But what about answering the question, am I awake? I believe that we can never know for sure. So right now, I can't do a test by knocking on this table and say, oh, it's solid. If I were dreaming, my hand would go right through the table. It must not be a dream. I think it's a problem for me anyway to ever assume for sure that I'm not dreaming. And I've proven this in some sense in my sleeping dreams. I will show someone, look, I can make my hand go through the table and I can make it stop. I can do both in a dream, right? It's foolproof to show you that you are dreaming. There isn't anything that is foolproof to show that you are not dreaming. And what if you really are awake when you ask yourself that question? 
When I ask the question, am I dreaming now, it doesn't mean that Beverly's brain is in REM sleep because I'm sitting up in a chair with my eyes open and talking to you. I ask the question so that I will become more aware and lucid and connected to my truer self as we're speaking now. So when you walked into the house for this interview and you asked me, is it fine to use what you say? I come from the perspective that you're a part of me, not Beverly, but her truer self, and that we have stuff to learn from each other and the fear is not necessary. I believe that I interact with people based on fear. And so if I know that I'm dreaming, I don't have anything to fear, I'm safe. So I start treating characters in my life differently when I have this awareness that this could be a dream. And that carries on very, very wonderfully in my dreams at night, but it also is very powerful in this so-called waking dream. Many people question at some point whether what we take for reality is actually real. Beverly has grappled with this question more often than most. One of the highlights was that, I think it was about 1982, and we were doing a TV special on lucid dreaming. That was called Discover the World of Science. And they sent reporters into the lab, watch me get ready for bed, get hooked up to all this equipment. And that night I was supposed to sing a song. So in the lab, we would usually do the same task when awake that we were planning to do when asleep, so we could compare. And I started singing the song, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. And they used that clip for commercials for the show. And so I was in my house and I had the television on, I was switching channels, and I saw myself in a bathrobe connected up to all these electrodes singing, life is but a dream. <laughs> my, you know, looking at myself was really odd and it sort of just hit me right then and there that yes, I have been lucid in my waking life in a sense, but I never looked at it from the perspective of meaning that I'm dreaming because lucidity just means clarity. And when we're saying a lucid dream, we're not talking about a clear dream. We're talking about very specifically knowing that a part of you is asleep and having this other part in the dream. Well, it kind of blew my mind. It kind of made sense, but it was also really kind of scary. You think, okay, this is true reality. This is real and nighttime dreams are not real and then suddenly they're both like either real or not real depending on your perspective. Beverly's experiences with false awakening further contributed to her conviction that it's folly to ever really believe that you're awake. It's common even for a lucid dreamer I'd say to be dreaming, to know you're dreaming, and then to suddenly wake up, find yourself in bed. And I used to have a series of being in bed, go in the shower, get dressed, and when I'm walking out the door, saying, wait a minute, this is just another dream. And one time I remember when I was living in Louisiana, I first started graduate school, I had this reoccurring dream exponentially get shorter, which was kind of crazy, so I would wake up go to the shower, and then in the shower, I would realize I was dreaming. And then I'd wake up, put my foot on the floor, realize I was dreaming. So 
it's very easy to get fooled into thinking that it's no longer a dream. That's why I try to remember nothing is not a dream. You know, if there's an environment around me, then it's, it's a dream. This can all get a little confusing. It is a pretty radical rethinking of reality. In Beverly's view, the boundary between sleeping dreams and waking life is not a line in the sand. So when I wake up in the morning, I could be clear and say, oh, finally, I'm not dreaming now. This is solid, real reality. But I don't. I think of it as, oh, this is the dream where I'm this age, living in this house with this family, and I'm going to continue it until I leave it. And it'd be nice if I continued that through every single interaction during the day, because I think then I would have a much more flowing enlightened life. If I kept that level of remembering throughout the day that I'm still just dreaming, that I'm safe, that everyone's a part of me, you know, all those things that I've learned from lucid dreaming, if I could continue remembering that, I think, yeah, life would be very, very easy. Beverly began to suspect that by focusing so much on lucid dreaming, she was missing some really important stuff. That's why she refused my initial interview request she'd found what she considered to be a much more fruitful path of inquiry. A lot of people will talk about how profound, how they've learned things at night, how they've asked questions and got answers from God or what, you know, however they describe it, which is beautiful. The thing that bothered me was why are they waiting to go to sleep at night for that to happen? I can do it with my dream people at night, but You know, my spiritual path is talking about how this is all possible when you're awake. You don't have to wait to go to sleep. That's what's most interesting to me and why I'm not teaching sort of rote, lucid nighttime dreaming anymore because I'm much more interested in how can I be aware and continue with that awareness 24-7. So yes, in my sleep, but why not when I'm awake? Why can't I use the power and the peace and all these wonderful things I've learned from nighttime lucid dreaming into my waking lucidity. Beverly's thoughts about 24-7 lucidity sound remarkably like many spiritual practices. In fact, this shift in focus led her to join a seminary. The wider perspective in which all of life is a dream includes the idea of an ultimate dreamer of everything, what Beverly calls the true dreamer of the world. I have oftentimes referred to the dreamer as the mind that's dreaming us all, but spiritual paths might call it God. My current teacher has this term called total being, which I think is one of the best understandings of who is asleep and dreaming the world. But, you know, how that all happens and how we all intermix our experiences is something not necessarily for science, I don't think, but for spiritual people to uh, delve into. But everything that I've experienced personally about life being a dream matches all of the basic religions in the world, all the ancient traditional paths. And the school I'm in now merges ancient spiritual paths with modern psychology and What's exciting is that it's not just I'm learning someone else's experiences, they're fitting in and I'm understanding my own experiences much better. In lucid dreaming, my dream body is not all of who I am. It's a current image of myself. 
and in the dream it might be an image that looks totally different or might look similar to this physical Beverly. So I'm interested in that connection to my truer self, to get out of my own way, to stop having beliefs that are just limiting me and just be open to whatever's happening. I think that's the key to, to spiritual work is not to have this grand adventure like I would in a lucid dream, but to just trust that what's happening is the way. And you don't even have to have a lucid dream. I think you just have to be open. Could this be a dream? So a good way to put it is to be in the present moment. So if there is pain, can I surrender to the pain? You know, if there is someone that I think is wrong or I'm arguing with, can I start seeing them as a part of myself, helping me learn something in the discussion instead of thinking of it as an argument? So living that way is extremely valuable. While Beverly hasn't turned her back on lucid dreaming, she no longer seeks out the kind of exciting experiences she's had in that world. I don't see any reason why not to be lucid at night and have adventures, but I would prefer to have more quiet experiences at this point, I think, rather than too much craziness. I guess sort of my goal is to whatever situation I'm in, I can find some sort of lucidity, some sort of power or peace or however you want to describe it. And then I'm not necessarily addicted to adventures. And as for controlling what happens in her dreams, that's shifted for Beverly too. I would say that when we're changing things, what's valuable is to change my own reaction to things, to change my approach, not necessarily to try to change someone else or something else, even though it is possible at a level of lucidity to magically change things, and it's fun, it's more valuable to just look at my own inner reactions, I would say, both in sleep and when awake. If I am dreaming, then anything is possible. It's an amazing way to live. It's a way to listen and to learn. So, to follow Beverly's advice, go flying in your dreams. Make mad love with that beautiful alien. Explode the sun. But if you want to get the most out of the present moment, pay attention to everything, even when it's not that exciting. Because you never know. Are we dreaming right now? Is it possible? Could this be a dream? You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Find out about all the music in this episode and more about the show at our website, nocturnepodcast.org. Thank you to Beverly Durso for sharing her experiences. Thank you also to Eric Ponville for background information on lucid dreaming. Nocturne is produced with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which provides resources to creative storytellers around the world. Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting this episode of Nocturne. Visit HelloFresh.com and use promo code NOCTURNE30 to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. 
Nocturne is proud to be a member of The Herd, a collective of smart and beautiful storytelling podcasts. Find out more at theherdradio.com. Thanks for listening.